0: Shabbat Shalom and good morning, everybody. So before I get started, I kind of want to just say, I, uh, I see a few new faces out there. Some, we have some visitors here. If you're a visitor here, or if you haven't been here in quite a long time, raise your hand up. And So, everyone, you know, make sure you say a special Shabbat, Shabbat blessing to these folks. And I see a face I haven't seen in a long time standing in the back there, all inconspicuous. Can we all turn around and say hi to Jacob Esposito? welcome back to... <laughs> So, you know, one of the worst things about being a preacher's kid is that, you know, the preacher is going to use, is going to tell stories about you all the time, constantly. You're going to hear every embarrassing childhood story, every, every bad thing you ever did is a kid is going to come out in one sermon or another, and I got to tell you, it's a vicious cycle because I'm a father now, and I'm, John's not here right now, I wish he was, I'm going to embarrass him today, so... <laughs> One of the things I've uh, I really had to get used to now that I'm a married man is, um, is, and I think a lot of you guys can commiserate with me if you have young children or you had them, is the tedious reality of putting a child to bed. Uh, you know, you don't get any breaks from it. It's got to be done every night. You, you can't just tell him to go, go to bed, you know, he'll never go to sleep. And if, you're anything like, if your kid's anything like mine, it has to be done in the exact same way every single night. There is a sacred, sacred ritual to be followed, and it must be performed precisely. So, in my house, the ritual involves a life and death struggle to get him to brush his teeth and to use the potty before he gets in bed. And when that's finished, he finally is done, and I'm exhausted. He's like, I'm thirsty. And I'm like, Oh, well, you just went to the bathroom? Okay, you can have a small, small sip. Okay, and they give him the bottle. And he goes, Okay. <laughs> he chugs the whole thing down and then there's another life and death struggle to get him to use the party again and then he gets (sighs) so after this exhausting battle we finally get around to reading some books and with the intending goal being that when we're done he will be wound down enough to fall asleep quickly but sometimes the bedtime ritual is not enough Sometimes after the books are read, he still has all his energy. So he might have jumped out of bed. He might be looking for toys or something. In that case, I have to resort to my secret weapon. So if John were here, he'd be laughing right now because this is a big joke in our house. On his bookshelf, only to be used in the most dire of circumstances, I keep the most dreaded book in the world. My wife in a fit of madness picked this up at a dollar like for a dollar at a used bookstore written by the author George Eliot in 1857. This book is called Scenes of a Clerical Life. And it will put anyone to sleep in 30 seconds flat. I can, I can open up, literally, to any page in this book, and I do that. I just, I want I, to I start reading. And I read a paragraph, and everyone in the room will be unconscious from boredom in, before I'm done. So, whenever John won't go to bed, I pull this book off the shelf, and I threaten to read a long description of, like, two old ladies embroidering over high tea or something. It is awful. It's really bad. It's really bad. So, completely unreadable to a modern audience. So, I don't know how people in the 1850s managed to get through it, but, you know, I guess it was more relatable to them than it was to us. And that got me thinking. In the scheme of things, this book, it's not that old. It was published in 1857. You know, and It might, have, might as well have been written on another planet. In just 160 years, the vi- value and message of this book has become so archaic and outdated that it's nearly impossible to relate to or connect with the world or the characters in this story. So, In literature, this is called values dissonance. It's when the values of the people or culture in a work of literature conflict with the values of the audience. It's why a movie like Birth of a Nation, where the Ku Klux Klan are the heroes, was a huge hit when it came out in 1915, but it's almost unwatchable for audiences today, for a lot of reasons. So, society's values changed so quickly. And that's why I find it so amazing that we can open up this Torah, this ancient scroll every week, and find that it still talks to us today. Torah is 3,000 years old. The book, this book is an infant compared to it. And yet the words of the Torah resonate and ring true even today. Right? Amen? Amen. Take the Ten Commandments, for example. These words, they were written in stone. They predate Paper. And yet you'll find that these are these words are still written on the walls of American courthouses today. These values to honor your parents, to not harm others, to take a break from work once in a while, to be honest in the things you do and you say, they are as true and relatable today as the day God inscribed them on those tablets. For the most part, at least. There is one commandment that, for me, sticks out like a sore thumb. There's one commandment that doesn't resonate with me, that I don't feel like I can apply to my life. There's one command that feels just as dated as scenes of a clerical life, and that is the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. See, the rest of these commands make sense. Stealing, lying, murder, adultery, those are just as big problems today as they were then. And things like coveting and not cursing. And even putting God first. Those are all things I struggle with every day. The graven images? I mean, really? Is that, is that something that we really struggle with? When you were, when you were a teenager, did one of your friends ever come up to you with a little wedding life? He's like, come on, let's, let's make a little idol. It's like a small one. No one will ever know about it. You know? Idolatry is so irrelevant, right? It's such a values dissonance. Maybe in Moses' day this is a big deal, but how am I supposed to relate to this? How am I supposed to find this important? Because God finds it important. I did a quick Google search on times that idolatry is mentioned in the Bible. The the results were boggling. From the Torah to the prophets to the writings to the Gospels, there are hundreds of warnings against idolatry. From Genesis to Revelation, you will find admonitions against the worship of graven images in nearly every single book of the Bible. You know, in this week's very parsha, God commands that the Israelites to destroy all the places where other nations serve their gods. But he's not done. Later on, we hear that not only should we destroy all the idols, but we shouldn't try to worship God through any rituals that were used to worship idols. And then we hear about false prophets who try to lead people to idol worship. And then we hear about the family member who tries to get you to worship idols. And it goes on and on and on. Idols, idols, idols. How do we process this? I just said the Torah is as relevant today as it was 3,000 years ago. If that's true, how do we relate to this command today? What is idolatry today? Is it something that we do still struggle with? And why does God feel so strongly about it? So let's change gears for a minute. I think the only way to understand what idolatry is today is to look at what idolatry was in the ancient world. So Judaism was a unique, was and is, unique and unthinkable religion in the ancient world because in a world where most civilizations worshipped this massive pantheon of highly specialized deities, the Jews only worshipped a single god who was the creator and master of the entire universe. Have you ever thought about why was this so unusual? Why didn't more people groups get into monotheism? I mean, it seems easier if you ask I me. Mean, it's got to be hard to keep track of all these minor demigods and local elementals. I mean, what's the appeal of polytheism? So, I'm a, I'm a bit of a mythology buff. You know, I, lo- I love all those Greek and Norse and Celtic myths. It's like, it's like reading comic books. You know, so I had this, I think my dad bought it. He had this great book when I was a kid that had the myths of all these different cultures, like the Japanese and Native Americans and Egyptians. So I'm pretty familiar with all of these pantheons. And the funny thing about them is that they're all very, very different. You know, warlike cultures have war gods. Seafaring people have sea gods. Places with bad weather had storm gods. Every culture was different, but there was always one type of god that every single ancient culture had. Can you guess what kind? I hear some. anyone else? It's not what you think. The Egyptians, the Norse, the Etruscans, the Mayans, the Canaanites, every culture had a God of fertility. A God who could help them have children and get through childbirth and who would provide rain for their crops. So why is this the shared factor? Why is this the one thing that all cultures had in common? It's about, and this is important, listen to me, look at me, it's about control. Think about the things that we have that we're the most anxious about. The things over which we have the least control. Fertility has got to be right up there on top of that list. Think about a young couple struggling to have a baby. How much they want it. How hard they're trying. But there's only so much you can do. So much of it is out of your hands. Think about how vulnerable that couple is. How frustrated they are. How they'll go see any doctor, wear any amulet, or visit any faith healer just to get a measure of control over this uncontrollable situation. Now imagine that same couple in the ancient world, where infant mortality was incredibly high, where death during childbirth was the norm, where every single bad crop could cause a famine that would wipe out your family. That's a scary world to live in. So the idea that I could somehow, some way, gain control over an area of my life where I don't have any, is that's very attractive. And that is the great promise and the great lie of idolatry. See, idols are worshipped out of fear. You know, if you were a sailor, you worship the sea god so that your ship wouldn't be wrecked. If you were a soldier, terrified of dying in battle, you'd make any sacrifice you can to the god of war. The motivations are purely selfish. You don't care about these gods. You just care what they can do for you. Yeah, but in Judaism, it's completely different. We aren't picking one god out of a pantheon to worship. We recognize that there is only one god, and that everything comes from him. He is the source of rain, of the sun, of life, of me. We draw close to God, not because we need something from him, but because we can't help but feel close to the one who created us and who loves us like we're his children. See, in Judaism, you can't worship God through a barter system. You know, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. That's ridiculous. What could you possibly offer the creator of all things that he doesn't already have? What lack could you possibly fill? See, we give to God, but not for favor, but out of gratitude. I'll keep, telling, you know, I'll keep telling embarrassing stories about my son, you know, since he's not here. if it stop me. So for Father's Day, he drew me this, this nice like, sloppy card in this crazy person handwriting. And, you know, I've kept it ever since. It, the value isn't in the gift. I don't need the card. The value lies in what the gift means. It means in the relationship between me and my son. That's the difference between idolatry and what God offers. With God, we can have a real relationship, one based on love, between a father and his children, idolatry is all about fear and the desire for control. We don't live in the ancient world anymore. You know, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to say a prayer over this remote control. <laughs> Lord, I have just come before you today, and, you know, I work really hard on these PowerPoints, and I think they really bless the, uh, the congregation. And yet somehow the, the enemy always manages to mess with my remote control, and, and uh, you know, really take it out of my hands. Lord, I just ask a blessing on technology in this country. I ask a blessing on the, sound, on the sound booth over there and all the speakers and all the microphones and everything. Lord, may we have a great service, one that runs smoothly and blesses you, Lord. I lift up this remote control to you, and it's in your hands. Yes! <laughs> we don't live in the ancient world anymore. Most of the ancient gods have crumbled back into the rubble from which they, they were formed, but the desire for control that gave birth to them, is as alive and as strong as ever. We have the same fears that our ancestors did. Our, our lives, are, they're, they're still out of control, right? We still worry about our health and our security and our futures as much as any ancient Israelite did. And here's the rub. Look at me, look at this. We are just as vulnerable to the lure of idolatry as they were. See, idolatry may have changed forms over the centuries. We don't carry around graven images anymore. But the root of idolatry, the reason why God hates it so much, hasn't changed. Idolatry, idolatry is our fear-inspired need for control that blinds us to the truth that God is the one who is truly in control, not us. It's hard. It's so hard to give God control hard to let go of our anxiety and our fears and to just trust in him it's so much easier to pretend that we are in command of our lives and that everything in life is under my control i'll give you an example i have a friend and i have used this friend as a straw man in a dozen sermons by now because he is such a cartoon character one day i'm going to get him to come here He's, he's this very staunch atheist. And one day we were talking, and I guess a subject of gratitude must have come up, and I was, like good stuff must have been happening to me. And I think I was telling him, you know, like, I'm so great, you know, I've been praying for things, and God's just been blessing me. He's been filling my cup, you know, like, every, you know, I have so much that I'm grateful to God for. You know, you know and so my friend says, Psh, I never pray for anything. Praying is for the weak. Everything I've ever wanted, I went out and got for myself. No one ever gave me anything. I don't know anything I have to anyone but these two hands. And those, those are his words. I'm sorry. You know, there's nothing wrong with a little self-reliance. You know, but when you take it to that extreme, what you're doing is knocking down the statue of the false gods and, rep- and replacing it with a graven image of yourself. This is the form idolatry takes today. When we make ourselves into gods in our own eyes. When we think that we are in control, not him. You know? Yeshua teaches us that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And that goes double when the other master you're serving is yourself. You cannot serve both God and yourself. You know, it doesn't surprise me that the ancient world had so many false gods, but their pantheons grow so large So a man fears that his crops will go bad. So he worships an idol to help him control his fears. But the idol, it's it's made of wood. What can it possibly do to help him? So then he makes another idol, this time to, to a different god. Maybe this one will be able to give him some comfort. But it's made of stone and has no more power than the last. So he makes another and another and another. And this man's world will become filled with idols, false gods and graven images. He will turn to one after another, after another, after another, and never find the hope that he is looking for because he is looking in the wrong place. And it's the same for us today. When we put our hope in ourselves instead of God, we are going to be disappointed because we are inadequate to the task. We can't control everything by ourselves. So that graven image of yourself that you set up that's going to disappoint you one day. And one day your own strength will fail you. Life will spiral out of control, and without God, you will lose hope in yourself. So you'll find another idol to put your hope in instead. Maybe you'll put your hope in, in money this time. Your job will become your new God. The thing that you put your faith in. But jobs, the problem about jobs is they come and they go. So, maybe you'll put your hope in romantic relationships or in the pursuit of education. You know, these are all good things, but they are not God. They don't belong on that pedestal. They are wood and stone. And they're just things that we use to try to control our lives. When those idols fail you, maybe you'll begin to worship alcohol or drugs. Maybe if you can't control your life, then you at least can control your anxiety. Maybe therapy will become your new god. Prescription medication, your new idol that you put your hope in. Maybe you'll start abusing food, or maybe you'll turn to sex or pornography for comfort. There are no shortage of idols in this world. They all, they all want your worship. Here's the scary thing about idols. You know, If you look at the graven images of the ancient world, it was obvious that the people who made them were forming their gods in their own image. The idols took the form of the people who worshipped them. But the thing about idols is, and here's a scary thing, they don't just resemble us. When we worship them, we start to resemble them. There's a famous theologian named N.T. Wright, and uh, he once said, hold on, did I have a quote there somewhere? No, I didn't put it down, it's okay. You become what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. Those who worship money become eventually human calculating machines. Those who worship sex become obsessed with their own attractiveness or prowess. Those who worship power become more and more ruthless. I'm pretty sure I have a slide, but there we go. So as we put our trust in these false gods, not only are they failing to give us the hope that we need, but they are changing us into their image Transforming us away from the image of God and into the image of something less. This is a dark one, huh? In the month of Alola, you're supposed to feel bad about yourselves. So, what do we do now? We are surrounded by all of these idols, and they're distracting us from our relationship with God. What do we do? Well, we can always follow the example our father Abraham and smash them. There's a beautiful story about Abraham when he was a child. I've told it before but I just love it so much I'm telling it again. So legend has it that Abraham's father Terah owned an idol shop where people would come and buy idols for their homes. One day Terah had to go away for a few days on business and he left his young son in charge of the shop. He told Abraham give the customers exactly what they need and never sell a defective product. You know, He had some integrity there. So later that day, a woman came into the shop and asked Abraham to give her a God who was strong and who could protect her house. You know, she pointed to a a powerful-looking idol on the shelf. How about that one? Abraham looked at it. Oops. Uh Uh-oh. It's taking over again. Lord, I'm giving control to you again. Sometimes you need some help from your friends. Andre, can you put it back to that strong-looking idol? There we go. So Abraham picked it up, and he dropped it on the floor, where it shattered into a a thousand pieces. This God isn't strong at all, he said. It's really quite fragile. How could this ever protect you? And the woman walked out of the shop, never to worship an idol again. Then a man came into the shop and asked Abraham to give him a God who was wise and who could grant him knowledge. So he pointed to a statue with a a long, wise beard on the shelf. How about that one? Well, Abraham said, well, my father only carved that statue a month ago. That god is a baby with a beard. What wisdom could you ever gain from it? So he picked it up, and he dropped it on the ground where it shattered into a thousand pieces. The man walked out of the idol shop, never to worship an idol again. So one by one... Abraham went to each idol in the store and found them all to be defective. The God people prayed to for rain was made of stone without a single drop of life in it. The God who was supposed to make crops grow was carved from a dead piece of wood. You couldn't grow a tree from this this God if you planted it in the ground. One by one, Abraham threw each God to the ground where they all shattered into pieces. Just then, Abraham heard the sound of his father coming back to the shop. He looked around, and he's like, uh-oh, I didn't think this through. (laughs) Realizing what he he had done, Abraham had to think quickly. There was still one idol left standing. It was this big statue against the back wall. So Abraham, he picked up, he grabbed a hammer, and he picked it up, he put it inside the statue's hand, and he took his lunch, and he put a loaf of bread at the foot of the statue. So, you know, Terah walks into the shop, and he sees all his idols lying in pieces, and he's like, what happened here?! Abraham says, um, Oh, father, I was in the bathroom and I came out and it appears that a fierce battle has taken place amongst the gods. Look, father, th- this mighty image is holding a hammer. Perhaps they were fighting over this loaf of bread and this god destroyed the gods that were trying to take his food. And Terah shouted, I made this statue with my own hands. It cannot walk. It can't talk. It can't swing a hammer or eat bread. It can't do anything at all. And Abraham said, "Well, oh, father, what you've said is the truth. This statue is heavy, immovable stone. Why do we spend our lives serving gods who can do nothing for us? Remember, I talk about values dissonance, Abraham spoke those words 3,000 years ago, and they are as relevant to us today as they were then. Why do we spend our lives putting our hope in things that can do nothing for us? Abraham was able to look at the idols in his life The things that promised to give him control, but couldn't deliver. And he cast them down, and he turned his eyes towards the one who was truly in control. Abraham put his trust in God, and when the idols were gone, God spoke to Abraham. And God can speak to us as well. When we recognize that we have to let go of our fear-inspired need for control, and put our hope in him, not ourselves. The scary thing about idols is the more you worship them, the more you start to resemble them. But the good news is, the same holds true when we start to worship God. When we cast down our idols, and whether they're the graven images of the ancient world, the false gods of the modern ones, or even the idols that we make of ourselves, when we cast them down put God back where he belongs, in the place where he deserves, he begins to transform us. When we choose to put our hope in Messiah Yeshua, Instead of the gods made of wood and stone, a change takes place and we start to become more like him. Can you put that slide up of um, the Bible verse there from 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 3.18 gives us a really encouraging reminder of what happens when we put our trust in God. So all of us who've had our veils removed, who've seen the truth, we can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord makes us more and more like Him, as we are changed into His glorious image. We become like the one we worship. Who do you want to become? Who will you worship? Shabbat Shalom, everybody. I want to worship the Lord, right? Who wants to worship the Lord to me?